Cambridge Ideas, transforming tomorrow. Hello, I'm Jude Brown, the director of the University of Cambridge Centre for Gender Studies, and you're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. In this talk, we will ask, is Barbie the ultimate symbol of commercialisation, of girliness, or is there a deeper reason for her powerful appeal to girls across cultures and decades? We explore the pros and cons of female stereotypes, and we ask whether plastic surgery allows women greater control or just conforms to female stereotypes of beauty. On the panel is evolutionary biologist Dr Helena Cronin of the London School of Economics, Dr Becky Mumford, lecturer in English Literature at Cardiff University, and Professor Ruth Holliday, director of the Centre for Gender Studies at Leeds University. So let's go inside the Michael Health Centre here in Cambridge and hear our first speaker, Dr Becky Munford. Described as damaging to girls' and young women's self-esteem, Barbie's often positioned as promoting a fixed and unattainable body ideal, as well as propagating limiting gender and sexual stereotypes. This kind of idea that she's a paragon of specifically heterosexual and also Western femininity. Perhaps most troubling for feminists is the extent to which she sells an ideal body image that can, generally speaking, only be achieved through surgical modification or extreme dieting. In so doing, she exemplifies the oppressive and subjugating forces of a social structure that reduce women to their body and appearance. So body embodies or materialises a certain narrative about femininity, the kind of narrative that um, Naomi Wolf theorises as the beauty myth. But she also conveys a highly sexualized image of the female body. Um, she's based on a German doll, Lily, who was originally designed for adults. So this idea of Barbie as a, a, a stereotype of perfect femininity is nothing new. But what I want to do this evening is think briefly about the ways in which um, Barbie has been reappropriated as a more empowering uh, figure in both feminist and mainstream contexts. And I also want to do this um, with the increasing commercialization and including the sexualization of girliness in popular culture in mind. Um, I'm thinking here particularly of the marketing of Playboy stationery for girls alongside that of the Disney princess, as well as the rapid expansion of the beauty industry geared towards young consumers, including the launch this year of a mini Miss UK pageant and the reported increase in girls under 15 wanting cosmetic surgery to correct um, body, what, what are perceived as bodily defects. Now Barbie herself um, is uh, no stranger to surgery, she's hit 50 this year and has, has also been at the centre of a media scandal because um, the French shoe designer, designer Christian Louboutin um, criticised her cankles. So with her impossible vital statistics, smooth and hygienic body, endless wardrobe, perfect smile and immaculate makeup, she's considered to be the epitome of female glamour. And I just want to return to this term glamour and its etymology for a moment, because I think it's instructive in thinking about the peculiar and particular power of this iconic plastic doll. Because Barbie doesn't simply represent glamour um, as beauty, fascination and allure, she also represents grammar in its more archaic sense as magic, enchantment, spell, as in the phrase, to cast the glamour over one. And this idea of a kind of illusory or um, fictitious beauty, a kind of deceptive charm, has faded in common usage of this term. 
So I want to emphasize then the sense in which Barbie glamours, okay, how she brings young girl under her enchanting spell, transports them to her pre-packaged, pink-packaged world, educates them in the disciplines of traditional femininity, and trains them in consumer competencies. One of the interesting things about Barbie is that she collapses that boundary between commodity and shopper, and you know, illustrates that link between consumerism and femininity. She's not only a glittering pink commodity to be consumed and marketed, but she's also herself an avid consumer of the predominantly pink paraphernalia of traditional femininity. Shoes, bags, jewelry, cars, designer dogs. So she really um, exemplifies the idea of a kind of commodified femininity, one that you can buy or buy into, um, this kind of idea of um, a, a femininity through acquisition. Now, for some, it's precisely this um, more playful mutability associated with Barbie that suggests her more transformative possibilities. And in this reading, Barbie, Barbie doesn't represent the fixity of gender roles, nor does she promote a singular body ideal. Rather, she's seen as a much more ambivalent figure, one who calls into question stereotypes and assumptions about gender identities and also behaviours. So the Australian Girl Studies scholar Catherine Driscoll, for example, sees Barbie um, as representing a zone of paradoxes um, which puts girls into relation with a gender machine. So Barbie then becomes a playful site of experimentation who's never quite complete, hence Driscoll argues her constant accessorising. So Barbie play then in this sense is an engagement with and a negotiation of and also an unsettling and disturbing of gender identity. I mean, Greer's not the only person who's tried to behead uh, a Barbie doll. So seen in these terms, Barbie might more positively represent the possibility of reimagining um, and transforming and testing conventional stereotypes. Her malleable body might be mass-produced and compliant, but it's also flexible and changeable. It can be fashioned and refashioned, constructed and reconstructed. And this is the argument of um, feminist theorists working in, in cultural studies who've really focused on the kind of plastic and plasticity of her body and how that might speak to a kind of iconoclasm as well. Now, this ironic attitude towards Barbie underlies her reappropriation in the past decade or so by um, some third-wave feminists. And this is only an aspect of third-wave feminism. It's by no means the whole picture. Um, Challenging the assumption that femininity is anathema to feminism, some third-wave feminists are concerned with reinvigorating girliness in a more affirmative manner. An example of this can be found in Jennifer Baumgardner and Amy Richards' um, now seminal text of third-wave feminism, Manifesta, Young Women, Feminism in the Future. And Baumgardner and Richards um, describe what they call girly feminism, and they describe this as being a new feminist philosophy. So they are identifying it as a kind of political move. And girlies aren't children, they're adult women, generally speaking in their 20s and 30s, who identify as feminist, but who are concerned with um, kind of reappropriating the disparaged artifacts of um, girlhood. So uh, makeup, magazines, knitting, and of course, Barbie. Gurley says we're not broken and our des desires aren't simply booby traps set by the patriarchy. Gurley encompasses the tabooed symbols of female enculturation, Barbie dolls, makeup, fashion magazines, high heels, and says using them isn't shorthand for we've been duped. Using makeup isn't a sign of our sway to the marketplace and the male gaze. 
It can be sexy, camp, ironic, or simply decorating ourselves with outloaded issues. Also, what we loved as girls was good, and because of feminism, we know how to make girl stuff work for us. And there's a sense here as well of um, kind of trying to speak back to the implication that a disparagement of girl toys is also a disparagement of girl experience and girlhood. So for these adult girly feminists, the paraphernalia of stereotypical femininity isn't at odds with feminism, rather it's central to it. It's central to a kind of sense of feminist empowerment, but also pleasure. Um, and specifically, it poses a challenge to the feminist argument that, and this is to quote Baumgartner and Richards again, the way to equality was to reject Barbie and all forms of pink packaged femininity. So this idea of girliness isn't just about um, rejecting and um, traditional sexist stereotypes about um, girls and reinvesting them with new meanings. It's also about challenging what's perceived to be um, the inflexible and prescriptive, prescriptive politics of their supposedly authoritarian, abstemious, and anti-pleasure feminist foremothers. So it's, it's a generational move as much as anything. One of the problems of this kind of object-focused feminism, though, is that feminism, too, has been subject to processes of commodification, but also co-option by a kind of mainstream culture, especially in what is repeatedly described as a post-feminist era. So this is the idea that um, the achievements of feminism are so pervasive that to talk about feminism isn't just irrelevant to modern women, it's actually just a bit boring and old-fashioned. Um, and this is an idea that the media has been really keen to promote. A kind of example of this co-option is probably most striking in the girl power phenomenon of the 1990s, this idea of a simultaneous celebration and commodification of female power. And um, Baumgartner and Richards described this as the Spice Girls pencil set syndrome, where girls buy products created by male-owned companies that capture the slogan of feminism but without the power. And we don't really need to look far to see this in Mattel's marketing material. This is their press site, and this is what they, they say about Barbie. Barbie's the original billboard for girl power. From fairy to fashionista, princess to president, Barbie has inspired several generations of girls to dream, discover, and explore a world without limits, all without ever leaving their playrooms. For girls, play is a vital part of growing up, and role play leads to real play. Barbie leads by example, inspiring girls to live out their dreams and encouraging them to aspire to be anything. Way more than just a fashionista, Barbie encourages girls to imagine themselves in and try on, in inverted commas, different careers and personalities. So there's this kind of paradoxical implication then that um, girl play is limitless as long as it takes place within the limits of the bedroom. And this play space tends to be a play space that's filled up with consumer goods. Also, the play in which these girls are encouraged to be engaged in is extremely consumer-driven. Barbie tries on, she shops around for different personalities. She's the kind of um, postmodern, individual, independent shopper who refashions and refashions her identity and does so through the kinds of consumer choices that she's making. And this idea of choice, I just want to finish with, underlying this activity of kind of trying on different identities is the notion of choice. And this is a distinctly post-feminist um, idea, post-feminist rhetoric, that seems to sell traditional femininity, and specifically girliness, back to women as a new mode of empowerment. 
The second wave feminist notion of choice associated with, for example, um, abortion rights is borrowed, emptied out of its political contents, and then repackaged as a kind of new glamorous mode of empowerment. So the argument goes, if feminism is about choice, then surely women can choose to occupy traditional gender roles. And this is nowhere more evidence than in the kind of prominent figure of, um, of girliness and the girl in popular culture. So we have celebrities like um, Paris Hilton or Jordan, Katie Price, for whom girliness, the kind of conspicuous consumption of traditionally feminine, pink, usually, artifacts, including bodily modifications, is not just a lifestyle, it's, it's a profession. And this is pushed um, to another extreme with figures like Cindy Jackson and also Sarah Birch, the real-life bi Barbies who have had so much surgery that they're more Barbie than Barbie. We might even consider something like the professionalization um, that we see with the figure of the domestic goddess as well. And what concerns me is that while these exaggerated displays of femininity um, associated with third-wave feminism, but also with post-feminism in its kind of more uh, mainstream media context, these displays of femininity might represent a kind of playful, ironic disruption of conventional gender identities. But there's a really blurry um, line between irony and the rarefication of traditional gender stereotypes. And I think irony has become a kind of a, a, a free pass for a lot of um, dubious politics. You know, this is an individualist, consumerist, neoliberal idea of empowerment. I'm not suggesting that this is a kind of straightforward instance of false consciousness. One of the difficulties with these images of girliness and um, girlhood is that they encode their own ideological critique through the use of irony. But I do think that we need to make sure that we're not glamoured by this idea of girl power. Now, there's, there's absolutely no question that girl culture, um, girliness, can provide vital um, and necessary and exciting spaces for contesting, reinvesting, and renegotiating traditional female stereotypes. But what concerns me is that this idea of pink packaged femininity has given way to pink packaged feminism. Thank you. You're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. We're discussing the pros and cons of female stereotypes. And next to speak is Professor Ruth Holliday. Hello. Now, um, I'd like to, I'm going to sort of talk quite a bit about um, Jordan, perhaps not directly, but, but implicitly throughout my talk. Um, but I wanted to start off just by quickly saying how it was that I got involved uh, in being interested in issues around cosmetic surgery, because that's the area that I'm currently working on. So as um, director of a Centre for Gender Studies, it's really not unusual to get phoned up by the press who will say, you know, what, what's the feminist view on, I don't know, women in management? <laughs> what's the feminist view on, uh, you know, Barbie, for instance? <laughs> what's the feminist view on this particular occasion on cosmetic surgery? So I sort of obliged by saying, well, you know, there's a kind of feminist party line here, um, that surgeons are on the whole evil capitalist patri and patriarchal exploiters of a culture that pressurizes women to look perfect for the purposes of men's enjoyment. Okay, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, for a long time, I suppose this was what um, feminists who are working in this area were saying. 
I mean, clearly there's a problem with this statement because it kind of implies that women passively go along with this culture and, and don't contest it. Um, and that it portrays women as victims of this culture, unable to make up their own minds and unable to make their own choices. Now, one of the other worrying things about this was that um, I obviously hadn't uh, got one of the um, post-feminist um, journalists, you know, who, who we like to sort of talk about as kind of dominating the media. And in fact, what was happening with this journalist was that she was very much agreeing with my position. And so I sort of said, well, you know, actually, maybe it's not quite as simple as that. In fact, um, you know, lots of women talk about maybe not wanting to be beautiful, not wanting to be like somebody in a fashion magazine, but really instead just wanting to be, you know, slightly better, to slightly improve their own actual body in some way, or maybe to put something right that they feel was, is, is not quite right um, already. Um, and so, you know, their reference isn't some sort of, you know, external advertising culture so much as, you know, their own body, perhaps particularly when you're starting to get on a bit and things aren't quite what they once were. So we talked about that um, a little bit. And she sort of, you know, uh, um, more and more kind of put forward a very strong, I suppose, feminist argument. And I sort of started to think, well, actually, you know, it's not really uh, um, that irrational. You know, uh, this young woman, I'd also read about her in the papers, and she was saying that she wanted to work in the media, whatever that meant. Um, and she was, you know, in many senses, making a very rational decision. Lots of women who work in the media have breast augmentations. Maybe this is something that could help her fulfill her career expectations. But this journalist uh, constantly sort of held her ground and was saying, no, you know, this is really, this is outrageous. And eventually I just sort of lost my temper and said, oh, for goodness sake, you've only got to look at Jordan to know that having big knockers can get you a good career. Um, this, was, this was a very, a very bad uh, learning experience for me in how to deal with the media. <laughs> Because two days later on BBC Online, which is, an, an, if any of you have Googled me, I've, embarrassingly this still comes up. It says, you know, Professor Ruth Holiday says. <laughs> and the only thing that's quoted is about Jordan's knockers. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Now, in response to this uh, reporting of what I'd said uh, online, I received two letters. Um, the first letter said, how dare you say what you said? This is completely outrageous. You, you're, you shouldn't be in a gender center. How can you call yourself a feminist? If you have a daughter, maybe you could counsel her. You could advise her to get a good career in prostitution, perhaps. Um, you know, and how can you say you know, this thing about Jordan? Um, you know, because Jordan is grotesque. And actually, this was something that I heard repeated a number of times. Jordan is grotesque. I mean, look at her disfigured, horrible body, mutilated by cosmetic surgery. She is grotesque. But I started to think, well, if feminists think Jordan is grotesque, why is it that so many ordinary women feel that, you know, in some senses, Jordan is a role model? that she's perhaps someone who, who's very successful, you know, who manages her business well, who, manage, who has until recently managed her public image very well. 
Um, and, and who's kind of known, for instance, for being uh, you know, a good uh, mother to her children, um, one of who is, is very disabled and you know, talks a lot about disability uh, and understands these things. And, and many young women seem to connect with her. So I started to think about that. Why is it then that she becomes such a role model? And I also, coincidentally, I was reading something and I found out at the same time that actually one of the pioneers of the, of the facelift was a cosmetic surgeon called Madame Noel, uh, who was a woman working in France uh, in, uh, up until about the 1920s. And her line was that if, she, if you could give women facelifts, they would look younger and therefore they could extend their careers. And by extending their careers, they could extend their uh, financial independence and not have to get married for longer. And so in a sense, she was talking about herself uh, as you know, uh, being involved in women's liberation. So I thought, well, this is another really interesting thing. And I sort of started to collect you know, odd little facts like that. And then I started to think about then, well, if this woman here is grotesque to feminists, then, you know, where do our ideas of beauty um, really come from? Well, I sort of, you know, I did know from, um, from kind of research in gender studies that um, for Western women then, beauty, since the Victorians at least, has been mostly slender, mostly white or pale-skinned, and importantly, very desexualized. Okay, very much in a sense like the traditional fashion model, okay, as opposed to the glamour model um, that Jordan is. Now, slenderness is about providing distinction, about saying that you're different from everybody else. But slenderness, of course, only works in cultures where everybody has more than enough to eat. Pale skin also provides distinction from those uh, who work, especially people uh, who have to work outdoors in agricultural or manual labor in the fields who, of course, uh, get tan. So pale skin has historically provided distinction, has marked women as kind of non-working, as urban and not rural and so on. And finally then, respectability has been very associated um, with beauty and, and kind of highlights small breasts and small bottoms. In other words, the lack of sexual markers of, of a woman's body and therefore refinement, propriety and also self-control. On the other hand, working class women and black women have often been marked as highly sexualized. Um, particularly through portrayals of large bottoms. Um, and large bottoms have been taken as evidence of sexual appetites and therefore um, lack of civil civilization and lack of evolution away from kind of base instincts and carnal appetites and so on. And these bodies tend to be marked by excess as opposed to restraint. So what are we to make then of the trend towards breast uh, and buttock augmentation or enhancement um, that many white women are currently seeking through cosmetic surgery. Well, on the one hand, skin lightening and nose narrowing for black people and eye widening for East Asians has usually been discussed in the literature as about the whitening or westernizing of black bodies. So could we read then um, buttock implants and collagen enhanced lips, for instance, as a blackening of the white body? 
Well, it's, that seems unlikely as a kind of straightforward explanation, but they certainly are a rejection of the desexualized body. Um, so a colleague of mine, Meredith Jones, who interviewed lots of cosmetic surgeons in Australia, found that cosmetic surgeons um, were actually being forced to defer to women who were coming to them asking for bre breast implants um, that were much larger than these cosmetic surgeons felt that they should be having. So what they thought was appropriate uh, from a medical uh, perspective, they were kind of saying, you know, this is the size you should have. And these women were saying, well, you know, if you won't do this bigger size for me, you know, there are 10 other surgeons that will. <laughs> so, you know, do it, do it for me or sort of risk losing my custom. So what she found was very, lots of very kind of, you know, quite empowered young women who, who knew what they wanted before they visit the surgeon. They weren't deferring to medical advice. And they were even kind of naming you know, the particular brand uh, and type of silicon implant that they wanted because they'd researched all this on the internet and so on. So there seems to be a certain amount of evidence then that women having cosmetic surgery want to be sexualized. They want their bodies to look more, um, you know, to exude more sexuality. So some people have argued then that cosmetic surgery is simply another, you know, more insidious exploitation of women's bodies. You know, that in a sense, we're kind of going back to an era when women are just simply, you know, recreating themselves for the male gaze. But we could equally say that this represents a greater diversity in who can count as beautiful. This kind of, you know, this white, slender, desexualized, sort of, you know, what we call normalized body is in a sense starting to be undermined. And so we could equally read this, for instance, as a sign of women's increased confidence and sexual self-determination. So one of the things that um, Jordan, Katie Price, is known for is, you know, having, a, she's a good time girl, okay? And um, this is something that she is celebrated for rather than condemned for. And in a sense, this makes sense when we look at the feminist struggles of the 60s, 70s, and 80s that prioritized uh, women's sexual pleasure and said, you know, this was important at a time when many people thought it wasn't important at all. In addition to this, marriage is no longer a, a necessary survival um, tactic for women. Women earn their own money uh, and they can be independent, not just for longer, but for their whole lives if they want to. You know, one of the things that we've got to remember as feminists, if we're talking about a body like Jordan's as grotesque, is has that got more, for instance, to do with class expectations of a slender, desexualized body than it has to do with, you know, a kind of real uh, feminist idea about, uh, you know, what advantages or disadvantages women. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. And our final speaker um, is Dr. Helena Cronin, who is a Darwinian philosopher and co-director of the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science at the London School of Economics. And her research includes uh, looking at evolutionary understandings of sex differences, evolutionary theory, and how Darwinian theory can inform policy. 
And tonight she'll talk about what evolutionary explanations there might be for Barbie's popularity and other archetypes of femaleness. Thank you. Well, as we've heard, it's um, Barbie's birth, 50th birthday this year. Um, but she's been two million years in the making. That's quite a birthday. Because Barbie reflects the evolved female psychology of our own species. That is, women's innate preoccupation with what men look for in a long-term mate. So, what do men want? Universally, very high on their list is good looks. Why? Because beauty is a reliable indicator of fertility. You could think of it as a sort of Stone Age body scan, which is how natural selection invented it. It brims with information about a woman's reproductive potential. For example, now bear in mind I'm talking only about averages all the time, not about every individual last woman. For example, universally, men prefer women with a waist size that is 70% of the hip size. That is what's called a 0.7 waist to hip ratio. And why do they? Because the mix of hormones that shape that 0.7 shape are actually optimal for fertility. They're high in estrogens and low in testosterones. These beauties of their various times, Kate Moss, Rubin's Muse, Venus de Milo, and Stone Age Venus, who's 30,000 years old, by the way, her birthday too, um, whether they're plump or slender, all of those are around 0.7s, and all of them have been regarded as beauties in their own time. 0.7 women are also healthier, and thanks to their brain-building body fats, uh, they're actually brighter too, and so are their offspring. Now, so what about much maligned Barbie's ratio? Well, she is actually, interestingly, tellingly, what ethologists would call a supernormal stimulus. That is, apparently, her, she's got an ultra-narrow waist, which is apparently 0.54. So she's an extreme on the low waist-to-hip ratio, a supernormal stimulus. Similarly, what about those unfeasibly long legs that Jermaine Greer sneered at? They signal very healthy development. Her hourglass figure means no problems with conception. Symmetrical looks, good genes for bodybuilding. What about baby-like face? It's probably high estrogen. And similarly, that's probably also why gentlemen prefer blondes. So, because of all, I could go on and on with that list, and Barbie fits them all. Cross-culturally, men place a much higher value on a prospective mate's looks than women do. And indeed, this, of all the criteria for mate choice, our innate criteria for mate choice, this is by far the largest sex difference in choice of mates. Women care far less than men do about looks in their prospective mate. And that, of course, is why women, far more than men, care about their own looks, and why women, too, care so much about the looks of other women, that is, their rivals. Ah, but what about cultural forces? Aren't I just being too biological and missing out uh, stereotyping, socialization, role models, and all of those sorts of things? These are not alternatives to innate dispositions. That's the important thing to understand about them. Newborn babies, again, 
no, no brainwashing and so on. Even at one day old, one day old, less than 24 hours, girls prefer a human face and boys prefer a mechanical mobile. So that is an innate disposition. None of them had ever seen the objects before that they were shown, and let alone copied others or been the subjects of brainwashing and so on. So I think those are two rather nice examples. So when you watch girls playing with dolls and boys playing with cars, remember that culture is reflecting and probably very much reinforcing their different natures. It's not creating their different natures. A second example is, again, the much maligned pink that is foisted on girls. A recent study of adults, which was beautifully done, has found that actually, this was adults, not, not little girls, has found that this preference is innate and cross-cultural. Even I was surprised at that one. I always thought pink for girls and blue for boys was um, not an innate preference. And along with blue for boys as well, innate. And the difference was so marked that sex could actually be predicted just from color preferences alone. It was such an extreme difference. I think those, those sort of examples typify how we could, should best think of biology and culture and how they fit together. Males and females certainly are treated differently in our culture and in all cultures, but that's because of their innate differences. Um, differential treatment isn't the cause of those sex differences. Rather, it's an effect, it's a consequence of it. And it's an effect that then, of course, feeds back into it and reinforces it and multiplies it in multiple ways. So, forces such as marketing, media messages, and so on, don't actually create the differences between males and females. On the contrary, they're the products of our species' evolved psychology, and they're exploiting very fertile ground inside our heads, inside our dispositions. So Barbie doll isn't the cause of Barbie girls. Rather, she's a consequence, a product of those girls' evolved proclivities and interests and values. But, however, as we can see, from some of the rather grotesque manifestations of Barbieism. The modern world, unlike the Stone Age world that we were evolved to live in, the modern world can realize and amplify our evolved propensities on utterly unprecedented scales, um, particularly in this century. And this has predictably very different impacts on males and females. I'll give you just one example, the area of competition. For good evolutionary reasons, compared to women, men are out-and-out -out competitors. They're in permanent competition with one another. Most women don't appreciate how far, the, how far this is true, how different they are from us. Men notoriously find any arena to be the first and the most and the biggest and the best. And as you can imagine, compared to the Stone Age environment, the modern environment is just replete with platforms of that kind. It provides arenas galore. Women just don't do such things. <laughs> That's just not what women do. By contrast, for women, the major area of competition over two million years has been our own body. That's women's area of competition. And so this is a serious difference in the modern world. Brain imaging has recently found, very predictably, it's revealed that when processing unflattering body information, 
more negative emotions are activated in women's brains than in men's brains, as you can imagine. And such feelings are obviously exacerbated by what's called the objectification of women's bodies, that is, treating them as mere instruments divorced from being a person or a personality. But I think we should remember why is objectification always of females by males and not vice versa. It doesn't work when you try to do it the other way around. There are lots of um, would-be feminist attempts to do that and it just doesn't work. It falls flat. Why is it that way? Well, it stems partly, obviously, from men's focus on women's looks, which is what we've just seen. But also, more fundamentally, it stems from a very deep biological asymmetry and one that, again, a lot of modern feminists just won't recognize. It's the huge sex difference in the costs of impersonal, non-committed, casual sex. We all really know what that um, huge asymmetry is because for him, it can be just a very brief encounter, but she could literally be left holding the baby and holding it alone, and that is a very serious cost in a woman's reproductive career. Just finally, I'd like to say a quick word on policy, because I find that there's some um, particularly, um, people find the biological evolutionary understanding of male-female differences rather unpleasant. But uh, I would say in answer to that, that science doesn't dictate goals, of course, but it can help us to achieve our goals. In fact, we need it for achieving our goals because if we really want to change the world, if we really care about changing the world, we need to understand it. We need to understand how it works. And when it comes to understanding human nature, Barbie's nature and Ken's nature, the Darwinian science of sex differences is absolutely indispensable. Thank you.